Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. This week, we go to one of my favorite places in the world, Mono Lake. The minute you get close to this salty desert lake, you feel like you're on a set from a 1950s sci-fi movie. There's so much sky in this basin that the crazy calcified formations popping up from the lake floor give the landscape a very Martian feeling. Unlike modern billionaires that are trying to get to Mars, I would recommend going to Mono Lake to discover how we might save the only habitable planet we have. I meet up with Jeff McQuilkin, who runs the Mono Lake Committee. Since 1978, this organization with 16,000 members has successfully fought to stop all Mono Lake's water from being taken by Los Angeles. Jeff became a Mono Lake Committee member in fifth grade, and his enthusiasm for Mono Lake has only grown. He's worked for the nonprofit for over 20 years, including the past decade as executive director. A graduate of Harvard in the history of science, Jeff lives at Mono Lake with his wife and three daughters. We'll talk to Ellery, one of Jeff's daughters, later in the show. We'll also meet up with Dr. David Herbst, who you may remember from the Podship episode on rock glaciers. Well, David was one of the original scientists back in the 1970s who helped start the campaign to save Mono Lake. I start by meeting up with Jeff McQuilkin. Okay, Jeff, so we're here at Mono Lake. Tell us, like, it's just a magical place for me. And and every time I come here, and every time I've come here, I've actually been here with you. So thank you for being such an amazing guide over all these years. Tell us why Mono Lake is unique. A lot of people are struck by Mono Lake at first because it's so large and so unexpected. And you're you know out here in the Great Basin and you've left the dramatic Sierra Mountains and it's big, wide open sagebrush plains. And then you come across this lake that's twice the size of San Francisco and has these volcanic islands out in the middle and you just want to know more about what's going on. And when you get down there, you know, you find out that there's these really unusual tufa tower formations sticking out of the water and the the lake is salty and uh, there's all kinds of birds and it's just mysterious, you know, what's happening here? And so it's grabbed people's attention for for many, many years, you know, scenic, ecologically important and a, a great place to explore. When did you first come to Mono Lake? In high school. So it was about 1987 or so. I came with some friends. We were camping and uh, we got snowed out of a backpack trip in Yosemite and said, well, we better do something fun up here while we're away from, from home. And we came to Mono Lake and had a great time. So these, these Tufa towers, they look like a Dr. Zeus invention. Like, is Tufa like, is it a real word? It seems like be something made up. <laughs> it's a, uh, they do look like Dr. Seuss uh, inventions, and it is a real word. It comes from the Latin uh, tufus, meaning porous rock. And so it has to do with how it's formed. Uh, freshwater springs that enter Mono Lake will bring some calcium in the freshwater. And then Mono Lake is a salt lake. It's also alkaline. It has a lot of carbonates. And so that calcium bonds with the carbonates in the lake right away and precipitates out as calcium carbonate, like a limestone. So basically the towers form where springs build them up over time and that's how they can get to be so tall. And uh, you can find them other places around the world, but usually Tufa is more bulky, flat kind of stuff. So the towers like we have here are pretty unusual. You know, you can go to Africa and find some, but uh, it's very, very scenic, yeah. Which kind of, I mean, the Africa comment is like, 
most Californians, most people in the nation, I don't think know that Mono Lake exists or even the Eastern Sierra. I mean, we're right here sandwiched between the Sierras and the White Mountains. And I mean, this is a really, this is an incredible part of the world that most people don't get to travel to. Yep, we're, we're off the, the beaten path. So the fact that we can see the tufas is the result of what? So the tufa form underwater, and um, the reason you can see so many at Mono Lake is because the lake has gone down in surface elevation due to the diversion of water into the Los Angeles aqueduct system, at least in, for many decades in the, in the past. And they're kind of have a, a, a different regime now, but for many years, starting in 1941, the full flow of tributary streams for the tributary streams was uh, went into the LA aqueduct and flowed south toward Los Angeles, uh, joined up with the diversions down the Owens Valley. And it was part of William Mulholland's grand vision for how to provide water uh, to the city back in the early 1900s. Which is like the movie Chinatown. <laughs> right, exactly. It was from that era of passing bonds and saying the city needs to grow. We need to have water. Where can we go to find that water? And the Owens Valley uh, was first on the list. And then the extension up here to the Mono Basin um, was uh, part of that project. So the lake it itself is very saline. The lake is salty. It has no outlet streams, so it's a terminal lake, as they say it, so like Great Salt Lake in Utah. And so water enters the lake and leaves by evaporation. So if you cut off that inflow, then evaporation keeps on going, of course, and then the, and the lake declines in volume and goes down in surface elevation. So it's about 45 vertical feet was the maximum uh, decline due to diversions. The lake lost half of its volume, and it's just so very large, 45,000 acres in size currently, it uh, became a, a huge impact on the ecosystem. And that's a lot of water that went into the aqueduct system at that time. So walking down this path, you see different dates. So this is where the water was in 1959. I mean, it's a long, long way from the lake right now. I mean, it's kind of startling. Yeah, it's a great thing about visiting the lake and see these markers showing where the lake was and what year it was, and it kind of charts that, uh, that fall in, in lake level, that's right. So this was like going into the 70s, like reaching a crisis point. How did that movement to save Mono Lake start? Coming to the 1970s, the, the lake is continuing to fall. It's a salt lake. We like salt lakes, the birds, the brine shrimp, the alkali flies that are part of the ecosystem here and make it so incredibly uh, important ecologically are all saltwater loving um, species. But even at Mono Lake, it can get too salty. So as the lake goes down and loses volume, it doesn't lose salt. So it's getting saltier and saltier. So by the 70s, it's uh, just about doubled in salinity, you know, already a couple times saltier than the ocean. Um, and it's reaching a point, um, this group finds out in 1976 of scientists that um, there's, a, you know, there's a point of ecological collapse at which you, you go past a certain salinity level and the productivity of the alkali flies and the brine shrimp, they're the, the core of the food chain. They just can't, they can't take it anymore. So let's um, talk about those two a second, just because right now it's colder and there's not as many flies. But the last time you and I were here together, it was just cr crazy, crazy <laughs> amount of flies. 
crazy amount of flies, uh, very friendly flies. Like, this is not biting yeah. ones, luckily, for the PR uh, of Mono Lake. Actually, they, I mean, as you walk, they move away. They move away, right. So they're, uh, you know, very nutritious, especially the larva and the pupa stages is primarily what the birds are getting out of the lake itself. Although you'll see California gulls that nest here uh, running along the lake shore and the flies are flying away, but they've got their mouths open and they chase them down the lake shore and catch a few uh, mid-flight as well. I mean, they're like billions. I don't know if anyone's... Rec- I mean, th- this is like Flymageddon. There's a lot of flies. There's a lot of flies. And yeah, early explorers were reporting, you know, a band, you know, six feet wide surrounding the lake all the way, you know, around and that, that kind of thing. Yeah. And is there a relationship between the shrimp and the flies? They're really the two critical organisms in the lake that provide food for the migratory birds. And um, the shrimp are also incredibly numerous, probably four to seven trillion of them out there in a given year. It's a unique species that lives only in Mono Lake. So, so we have, you know, just one, we have one species of shrimp. It's the only place in the world they live. They're not endangered because there are seven trillion of them unless the lake gets too salty, back going back to water diversions, because then they're all in trouble all, all at once. Um, but it's, it's rather amazing, yeah, the abundance of the flies and the, the shrimp out there. So did Mulholland or anyone ever conceive in their notes or like, you're taking all this water from Mono, did people think it could be threatened and we're going to do things differently? Or like, what was the level of consciousness as, as this was unfolding? You know, Mulholland and the Department of Water and Power engineers, I mean, they, they knew there would be consequences. Owens Lake and the Owens Valley had already uh, significantly dried up in the early 1900s, and there were some projections done um, that were clear. You know, Mono Lake would go into decline. I think the story of Mono Lake is one of changing, expanding values in California and in the environment getting a seat at the table, us all recognizing as Californians that there are um, resources here in California that should uh, outlast all of us and be there for future generations. And really, at Mulholland's time, they knew there would be impacts, and they said, oh, well, um, you know, the, the best use of this water is to transport it to Los Angeles. And the system just was not designed to um, balance the needs of people with the needs of the lake for protection. You know, in a nutshell, that's been the Mona Lake protection effort for 40 years, is uh, figure out how to meet real needs for people, but protect Mona Lake and the ecosystem at the same time. So tell us about David Gaines. He came on the scene and was an activist, and like, what did he do? Yeah, so David Gaines was a co-founder of the committee, started the organization in 1978 with his wife Sally and a bunch of uh, others, and it really came out of a research effort in 1976 um, where a group of undergraduates, which is kind of amazing, got a grant from the National Science Foundation and spent the summer here trying to get a comprehensive sense of what was going on, because at that time people knew, yeah, the lake's going down, yeah, there's a bunch of birds out there, but... What does it all mean? And you know, how important is the lake? Is you know, is this one of many? Is this unusual? And what they saw motivated them to say, we need to take some action here because we shouldn't lose Mono Lake. So David started the committee, and you know, one of the first tasks was really to just get the word out that this situation existed, that Mono Lake was here. It's not. It wasn't that well visited at the time, and um, certainly the problem wasn't known. So he was um, very good at. Um, taking the science of uh, that was discovering the importance of the lake ecologically and then 
blending that with the water history and the story and then going around the state um, back in the day with a slide projector and the carousel and doing a slideshow about Mono Lake and sharing the word with people. That's actually how I first heard about Mono Lake when I was in fifth grade uh, in Southern California. The basic idea was this is a situation that's way out of balance. The diversions from the streams were 100% of the flow. So they were dry and the stream ecosystem had collapsed and Mono Lake was going down. And so the basic point was, well, we need water for people, but that much with this extreme of an impact, probably not. There's got to be a, a way to find a balance. As I mentioned in the intro, David Herbst was one of the scientists who back in the 1970s went to Mono Lake to study what was going on. Today, Dr. Herbst is a research biologist with the Sierra Nevada Aquatic Research Lab and the Marine Science Institute. David, how did you first hear about Mono Lake? Well, I was an undergraduate student at uh, University of California, Davis. So I was walking down a hallway and I saw this poster on the wall that said, Students Wanted for Research Project at Mono Lake. And I thought, well, that sounds just about right. And what year was that, David? 1976. So that was the year that um, a half a dozen students from Stanford and about the same number from UC Davis got together and came to the lake, camped out on the shore of the lake, or actually just up, up, up above the lake on a little creek, and uh, did different kinds of studies at the lake, from the biology of the birds at the lake to geology, uh, plant ecology, and then I studied um, the lake itself and the insects and uh, uh, the brine shrimp in the lake. Did it feel like a kind of activist movement? I mean, like you see the pictures and like it looks like a rough crew, like ready for action. That summer was kind of the beginning of that, but Mono Lake was really not on the map at that point either. And so it was after that summer and finding that there were some really important reasons to protect the lake, which at the time, again, wasn't on any kind of conservationist agenda that then David Gaines went on to found the Mono Lake Committee. How bad was it in those days? How close was it that to, to Mono Lake collapsing in on itself because of a lack of water? Right. So the salinity of that lake at the time, of this lake at the time, was 10% salt. We did studies to find out what the reaction of brine shrimp and uh, alkali flies uh, in their larval stage living in the lake was to increasing levels of that salinity. So we knew that projections would have the salinity of the lake reach as much as 15%, so 50% again as high as the salinity of the lake was at the time. We were also interested in what the reaction of these organisms would be to lower salinities because the lake had been as low as about 5% salt um, about 40 years prior to that when the city began diverting water from the streams that flowed into the lake. So we did experiments to look at those effects and found that the uh, shrimp and the flies really thrived at those lower salinities. They survived much longer than they did at the current salinity of the lake at that time, that 10% concentration, but that by the time they got to that 15% level, um, there was a lot more mortality and they were really right on the edge of being able to survive. So that I think from the standpoint of the health of the lake was an important impetus for the formation of the Mono Lake Committee. And besides that, maybe even more significantly, was that the level of the lake had reached a point where the island, where the gulls had a colony, was becoming land-bridged to the mainland, and coyotes were crossing that land bridge and invading the colony and, and of course, destroying the nests. So you in your life have seen, seen kind of the entire arc 
of of Mona Lake from on the precipice of of collapse to today where where we're seeing its rebirth does it feel like gratifying to have been part of that movement oh yeah absolutely that was a really a formative time for me as a scientist because it allowed me to get a sense of the importance of doing scientific research that could support the conservation of a place as unique and as beautiful as Mono Lake. And like there are all kinds of cool things that happened, like bringing water from LA by bicycle. Like, did you participate in those kind of activities? Yeah, I sure did. The so-called bucket walks that we had in the early days where we would take water from the diversion point on Levining Creek and walk down the highway to the lake and go down to the lake shore and rehydrate the lake. Uh, symbolically, there was another group of people that would ride bicycles from Los Angeles after having dipped little vials in the reflecting pool in front of the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power's building and then bike up the two or 300 miles to Mono Lake and join the bucket walk and put the water back in. So, yeah, a real feeling of camaraderie. It's been a real blessing for me to be a part of it. Back with Mono Lake Committee Director Jeff McQuilkin, I ask him how the work that David did back in the 1970s led to the legal victories for Mono. You know, it was 1970s, it was beginnings or, you know, early phases of environmental awareness in terms of, you know, new laws being passed, new new desire in the public to, you know, give the environment more attention, more more protection. And so the, the group was really trying to figure out what is out there that we could use from a legal sense to modify these water rights in the Mono Basin. And they really had to explore around because it wasn't clear that there was anything um, coming out of the Maholland era. You know, once you take water, you've got it, and that's that. Um, so the really significant legal precedents that were established at Mono Lake was, was the first was about the public trust doctrine in California, and then the other had to do with fishing game codes and flows for fish. And so there was a lawsuit that the committee and National Audubon and some other partners filed in 1979 that went to the California Supreme Court and said that the public trust doctrine in the California Constitution, which is a concept that goes way back to uh, Roman law. And what does it mean? Yeah, what does it mean? It, mean? it means that there's a duty of the state to protect public resources for all of us and not just us today, but future generations as well. And sometimes that might mean, you know, harbors and ports and navigation and the ability to go up the Sacramento River and so on. But uh, particularly navigable waters are, are a focus. So you're looking at these shared public resources. And Mono Lake, of course, is very large, definitely subject to the the public trust, but what does it mean for the environmental protection? And the argument was by issuing these water rights that were causing the result of the lake approaching ecological collapse. Um, a mistake had been made, the public trust was being violated, and something needed to be different. And the California Supreme Court agreed in 1983 and said, you know, there needs to be public trust consideration of values like the ecological value of Mono Lake incorporated into this. And so that had started off a process that you know took another decade or so. We need to figure out, you know, what level should Mono Lake be at? It's not going to be a zero diversion situation. LA is going to get some water, but it should be an amount of water that we know Mono Lake will um, hang in there at, at a ecologically healthy level. So that led to a really important decision in, in the mid-90s where that public trust doctrine came out and was incorporated into the actual 
details of how much water can go into the aqueduct system um, in a given year and uh, some substantial protection for the lake. The other legal precedent that was established at Mono Lake was implementation or enforcement of fishing game codes. And so there are, there's a fishing game code that says you have to leave enough water in the stream to keep fish in good condition that may be living downstream of your diversion point. Now here at Mono Lake, the diversions were total, but that for many years meant you couldn't do much with this particular rule because there were no fish downstream. They had all uh, died and they were gone. The stream had been dried up. But interesting turn of events in the wet years of the early 1980s. Uh, there was just so much water that the aqueduct uh, system couldn't contain it all. And so water flowed past the diversion dams. Fish went with the water and kind of reestablished in these uh, rather barren streams, but there, you know, the, the channels were still there. And when it came time for the city to shut those down, those flows down and resume normal operations, um, a local fly fisherman had found these fish and took this finding to the local uh, DA and judge and an injunction. And they thought, what can we do? And oh, the Fish and Game Code says you can't dry it up. There's fish down there. And uh, it hadn't been enforced in you know, decades. And it was really a rejuvenation um, of that requirement that led to a temporary injunction, a small flow. Uh, in the stream at that time, leading on to larger flows over time. And, uh, you know, kind of a package of, you end up with public trust protection for Mono Lake, fish protection in the streams, and together, of course, you're talking about putting water down the streams and into the lake for the benefit of both. Because we get so many stories in the news, Jeff, about things going wrong. Every time I see Mono Lake, hear about it, it actually just kind of warms my heart. It's a place where things turned out for the better based on citizen action and citizen science and, as you said, fly fishermen and local judges, and it kind of all cobbled together to create a victory, which is so rare these days. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I love working here because there are hopeful things to be working on, and we have some tremendous restoration programs. There are big challenges. There's climate change. There's uh, the day-to-day of making sure great decisions that are written on pieces of paper turn out and are implemented out there in the real world and turned into real water flowing real places, and it's going in a positive direction, and and that's really refreshing, yeah. So tell us about these commitments because over the years you and I have talked and you you constantly either going back to court or going back to the state to make sure they do what they're supposed to be doing. The challenge at Mono Lake was that the damage was so significant of the lake going down and the streams drying up that not only after these legal victories was there, okay, there's going to be a new balancing between water headed down the aqueduct to LA and then water for lake. There needs to be a restoration program uh, to recover from some of this damage. And, and that's a requirement of the, the water licenses. It's something that the, the city pays for, makes, makes happen. Um, there's been some tremendous progress on that, um, but there are still steps to do. You know, one, one example is um, the infrastructure of the Los Angeles aqueduct was built with the idea that it would be operating to take all of the water all of the time. So when you build it that way and you pour your concrete and you design your valves and then the world changes and, you know, current DDP leaders and the Mono Lake Committee and the State Water Board all say, okay, we're doing this restoration program. So we're all going the same place, but there's no valve to turn in some cases. So at the largest of the tributary streams, for example, there's really a need to like modify the infrastructure and, and go back in and put in a new outlet so that flows can be released into Rush Creek uh, in the way that they need to be done for a, for a restoration program to be successful. And so you're kind of undoing this you know, mindset of the 1930s 
here and you know getting on to 2020 and uh it, it's kind of amazing because you might have agreement among all the parties of what's supposed to happen but you're trying to fix this historic infrastructure that was built to do something else and bring it along with us into this new mode of operating and you created this amazing visitor center right um in levining like so many people come by here and you know, on the way to Yosemite or through, you know, 395, like, it seemed like really inspiring. Like this morning we were there and there was a whole line of people waiting to get in to learn about Mono Lake. You know, when David Gaines started the committee, the worry was nobody really knows Mono Lake is here. Maybe people don't really care. Maybe it's not a big deal. Um, but the gamble that he was made was, I think if we tell people about what's happening, people are going to care about this place and want to protect it. And he was definitely right about that. You know, there's a quarter million people a year uh, at South Tufa, just one of the visitation spots, um, having a chance to see the Tufa Towers and explore the lake. And it's, um, you know, it's, it, it's fascinating. It's got a great story. It's a beautiful place. It's great for bird watching, photography, hiking, just adding to your experience of the unusual wonders of California. Um, and it's great that we're able to have a visitor center. Your kids have grown up here. Like, what's their relationship to Mono Lake? To answer that question, I turn to Jeff's daughter, Ellery, who's a sophomore in the local high school. I've lived in Mono City right next to Mono Lake for my entire life. What does it mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of become part of my life, and sometimes I feel like I almost forget about it, but then we'll drive by, and there's a particularly beautiful morning, and I just see it all again, and it's like I've never seen it before, and it's just really incredible. And there are these little moments when I go swimming there with my friends or canoeing, and I just see the lake all over again as a whole, and it never stops amazing me. And the amount of salinity in it, does it, like, keep you more buoyant? Is it like the Dead Sea? (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty fun. You can just lay back and float. I always have a difficult time floating, but everybody else can do it perfectly. Yeah, it's pretty fun to swim in. You can... It's nice. And it doesn't get... It doesn't get too cold, so that's always good, too. Do you study in school? And, like, is it, like, a subject or something that you look at? Um, we don't... (laughs) We sadly don't talk about Mona Lake a ton in school, but we do do some field trips to it. Most of the school has been canoeing in Mona Lake. And have you canoed out to the islands? I have never canoed out to the islands, which is a goal of mine that I really need to get on. We've done some pretty cool canoeing trips. My dad and I have canoed in Mona Lake in the middle of winter, which was kind of terrifying, but very exciting. Um, But never the islands. And so you're focused, now you're studying glaciers. Yeah, glaciers. I did, I have studied Mona Lake before, but yeah, now I've turned towards glaciers, yeah. Which is what one does as a sophomore in high school, I guess. (laughs) I mean, I think that science has always really fascinated me. And I just, in the era of climate change, glaciers are really fascinating. And it's a really prominent example of the way climate change is affecting us. So I find that it's really a way to sort of center myself and see how much more of a difference we need to make in our world to really change things around. And I think it's also just a really beautiful way to be in a place that's so incredible and then it's also just really moving because you see this place is so amazing. I mean, I've stood on top of glaciers and it's pretty incredible to think this shaped the Eastern Sierra, like that's my home and I'm standing on something that shaped it. And it just is really moving in a way that nothing else I've really found is because it's disappearing and it's terrifying to think about. Thanks, Ellery. Yeah. There must be something in the water in Mono Lake because Ellery's one of the smartest high school kids I've ever met. 
Back with Jeff, I ask him about the islands in the middle of the lake, which I now also want to canoe to. Both the islands in the lake, as well as the mountains on both the north and south side, are volcanic in origin. And Neged Island, which is the, the black-colored one, um, is a basalt-type rock that came uh, from an eruption into the lake uh, tens of thousands of years ago. And then Poa Island... Um, it, it kind of has an awesome story. It's much younger, only a few hundred years old. So mm. come see Mono Lake now. Who knows how it might change, you know, yeah. in your lifetime. And it's very uh, light colored. And the reason is it's actually the bottom of the lake that was punched upward by a similar volcanic eruption to Nejit, but that dark um, actual you know, molten rock material didn't come up through the surface. So it's the bottom of the lake deformed and pushed upward uh, into the sky. So you're seeing lake bed sediments actually as an island. So it's one of your favorite ways to kayak or canoe. I mean, it sounds like an amazing way of seeing the lake from the water, which most of us don't get to do. Yeah, you know, walking down to the lake is great and, and wonderful, um, but being able to get out on the water is really an experience, and it's a great place for canoeing, kayaking. Mono is also a very important bird habitat. So our nesting birds are California gulls, and they're coming from the coast in California primarily, and they fly across the Sierra, nest at Mono Lake, hatch their eggs, raise their young, and they all fly back for the winter and spend the winter at the coast. Uh, and then migratory birds, um, the big species that come through are phalaropes and eared grebes. And um, eared grebes are uh, pretty mysterious because they live their entire life out on the water, um, so you don't, you don't see them in your backyard. They're kind of duck-sized, and um, we get a million, more than a million coming through um, between us and Great Salt Lake. It's the vast majority of the North American population will go to one of those two lakes. They nest in Canada and then head uh, to Central America um, waters for the winter. And then the phalaropes are really amazing. They're, they're nesting in Canada or points north and then come to Mono Lake again on their migratory journey. Um, there's so much food in the lake for them. They'll, they'll molt their feathers, grow a new set of feathers. They'll fatten up. They're only the size of your fist. They'll take off from Mono Lake and they'll fly nonstop to Argentina, South America, where they're going to spend the winter. 3,000 miles nonstop. Amazing. Jeff, if there's one thing that everyone could do to protect Mono Lake, what would it be? You know, the story of Mono Lake is a lesson about uh, water efficiency, water conservation, um, you know, the solutions at Mono Lake. It, it, it took court action, it took the state water board, we have all these rules, but the reason it works to protect Mono Lake is because people in Los Angeles are happily and enthusiastically conserving water and being more efficient. And so you don't need to take as much water from a natural place like Mono Lake um, to be able to live the same quality of life in, in, in LA. And that's a story about Mono Lake in LA, but you can see that with every water supply throughout the state, whether your water is coming from the west side of the Sierra or a local supply, um, being efficient, being water wise is uh, gonna make a big difference in the state we all love and enjoy. So the answer is, if you really care about Mono Lake and you don't have a low-flow toilet or an efficient showerhead, those things can actually make a real difference. They can make a huge difference. In, in L.A., we were part of the ultra-low-flow toilet retrofit program, you know, now very commonplace. I mean, it's just a standard. You don't buy the water-guzzling four- or six-gallon model, but there were a lot of them in service in the 1990s, and there was a program to retrofit those out. The amount of water being saved continuously now just through that toilet exchange program is about half of what was being diverted from Mono Lake at the peak of water diversions. So was that water really necessary to divert? Apparently not. So one of the cool things in, in your bathroom, you have some great posters, but one of them talks about the number one 
water using crop in the United States? I had no idea until I saw this. What is, what's the answer to that question, Jeff? That beautiful green lawn that's everyone's growing in their, in their yard. That's right. So lawns actually having, they're, maybe they're the next frontier. I know a lot of folks in the, in the drought took their lawns out, but is that, is that your next big project? For Southern California, it, yeah, it is, it is really a big project. And that's not to you know, deny people a lawn where it's useful or the kids are playing or something, but a lot of folks, then, when you look at your house and your landscaping, it just kind of has always been that way. And it's more than you need, more than you want, maybe, when you start to think about it. And there's some great programs in place to replace those lawns with um, native landscaping that's very you know, low water use and, um, and quite beautiful. A big thank you to Jeff McQuilkin and his daughter Ellery and to David Herbst for fighting to protect Mono Lake, one of the most beautiful and unusual places on the planet. If you haven't been, I'd strongly recommend it. And if you want to go again, let's plan a canoe trip to the islands. The story of Mono Lake shows us what can be done through science, public education, advocacy, and most importantly, tenacity. It's really a model for the rest of the planet as we struggle to save the places that we love. In the next episode of Pot Your Birth, I talk with a young woman, Heather Bollent, who was so upset by the plastic washing up on the beach that she embarked on an epic journey to walk the entire perimeter of the state of Florida. Thank you so much for being part of the Pot Your Birth journey. From the entire Pot Your Birth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, I hope you have a trip to Mono Lake in your very near future. 